0: Hi, this is Malia Cromer, director of the Goucher College Poll, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, a source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy viewed favorably by an overwhelming majority of Marylanders. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with a special co-host, Mako's Policy Associate, Drew Jabin. Drew, filling in for Michael today, we are recording virtually, but how are you today? Thanks for coming on and, and guest hosting.
1: Yeah, I'm super excited. I feel quite a lot of pressure to stand up to Michael's wonderful talents, but I'm happy to be here. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. No pressure at all. Don't worry about that glad to have you here actually because we're going to talk about Maryland's community colleges. We'll check in with our 16 community colleges and talk about the role that they play in Maryland and we'll explain why they're going to be crucial for Maryland's economic recovery post the pandemic. Again Drew to better help us understand the crucial role that community colleges play I'll turn it over to you. You do cover Mako's education portfolio and you will introduce our special guest today.
1: Perfect. Yeah, I'm happy to have uh, Brad Phillips with us recording today. He is the Maryland Association of Community Colleges Deputy Executive Director. Brad, can you tell us a little bit about MAC and your role with the association?
2: First of all, thank you, Kevin and Drew, for having me on the podcast. And I want to also extend thanks on behalf of our Executive Director, Bernie Sadusky, as well as our 16 Community College presidents. As you've already mentioned, MAKO has become such an incredible strategic partner for us during the General Assembly. MAC itself is a nonprofit association designed to achieve statewide legislative and policy goals for the community colleges. We represent all the 16 colleges when we take collective action, and we tend to uh, try to work liaison with all the higher education segments. As the Deputy Executive Director, I get to collaborate with the presidents and their senior leadership teams on policy goals and operating in capital strategies as well as transfer policies and other legislative issues as they arise The community colleges really are such a, a fascinating segment of higher education i really think the state has yet to realize their full potential
0: i agree with you i don't think it's just maryland though i think it's most states maryland counties are partners with the state in funding community colleges and the fiscal relationship rather that was originally envisioned by the cade formula was a three-way split between the state the counties and tuition revenues But we know the state has never fully funded its share.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. And honestly, during this past legislative session, MAC and Mako worked together on a bill that would have helped boost state funding for community colleges, unfortunately did not go too far in the abbreviated session. But Brad, could you talk a little bit about where the funding levels are supposed to be by now and what are Maryland students missing out on?
2: Before I can answer the first part of that question, Drew, I have to give a little bit of a history lesson. And um, I would say for the past 24 years, since the establishment of Cade and Law in 1998, Maryland has yet to achieve that policy goal, Kevin, that you spoke about, that one-third, one-third, one-third. And uh, what happened in the last economic downturn in 2008, the legislature decided to punt the ball 10 years out into the future. So that percentage tie that we are tied to with the four-year institutions that would achieve that funding parity won't be realized until 2023. And of course, here we are in another economic downturn in the midst of a pandemic, ramping up the Cade formula and statute. Unfortunately, if you look at it at a micro perspective in the budget, it looks like we are getting a bigger increase than we deserve. But the macro policy initiative of funding parity is really um, what that is trying to do. And we're really trying to hang on to every cent we can get through the Cade funding formula.
0: Right. And Brad, you know, with Cade, when the state doesn't get there to where it should be with funding, pressure really mounts on the counties and on students through tuition, right? And that's the last thing anybody wants to see is students having to pay more in tuition, especially when you have so many innovative programs that we'll talk about soon, and you are going to play a huge role in our economic recovery. So Talk a little bit about how the funding pressures can mount when the state does not pick up its share of the tab. The problem
2: is when the state does not fund the community colleges at parity level, which they established as the policy goal, it really impacts black and brown and low-income students that are enrolled at our institutions by forcing them to actually have to pay more in tuition to cover the costs. We're at a point where the state is asking us to do more than we can do without further help from the state. Students cannot pay any more tuition, especially during a pandemic. And the goal here was when Cade was established and that was a funding percentage linked to the four-year institutions, it was done so deliberately knowing that once the state funded the four-year institutions, the community colleges would get a third of the cost, 29%. Unfortunately, what happens The formula, when we have a bad year, the four-year institutions get cut, and we also get a double cut, a removal of all any increase that we would have gotten through the Cade formula. So it's a double whammy effect, so to speak. And it really is hurting low-income minority students. 60% of our students are minority students, and 40% receive Pell, which is a proxy for low income. We think that's an understatement. I think there's more that have difficulties navigating the financial aid uh, landscape
0: we certainly need to fund our community colleges. I think counties have stepped up and tried to chip in everywhere that we can so that we don't see tuition rise for students, particularly students that you're talking about, maybe low-income folks who have limited resources. But Drew and I were talking earlier, it's amazing the amount of programs that community colleges provide, and especially that's important amidst this pandemic.
1: Yeah, it's even with the funding shortage, the Maryland Community Colleges provide licensure and certification training in over 130 occupations to over 100,000 students per year. That has got to be huge in workforce development.
0: Definitely. I mean, in Brad, we have a worldwide pandemic. We have high unemployment in this country. And so it is very, very important and relevant for community colleges to, to play a role in this recovery. In Maryland, we know there are tons of folks out of work currently. Talk a little bit about where community colleges fit in for retraining, improving workplace skills, et cetera.
2: Well, the time of community colleges has arrived, and as the social contract that we all are operating in Maryland has required students, required Marylanders, I should say, to have some type of training after high school. We learned at the last economic downturn in 2008 that the jobs that were lost, that did not come back, did not require further education out of high school, like those licensure and certification programs. The knowledge economy, the world that we live in now requires students, requires the workforce to have the specialized skills necessary to be successful in what they do. Those programs that you spoke about are what gets Maryland to work. They are the programs that allow students to have a comfortable lifestyle, to have a quality of life, and to be able to flourish and be able to support their families. And we are really where the workforce meets the road. One of my professors one time told me that higher education was embedded in the workplace and and not the temple. And we are really right there on the ground floor of where Marylanders go to get get retooled and get back into the economy, especially now when economy is shedding jobs because of the global pandemic that may not ever return.
0: I love that where the workforce meets the road. You know, we talked a lot about the Kerwin Commission on this podcast. There is definitely a drive to provide those skills that are needed for high-skilled work, right? And we know that a lot of times those jobs are more in demand for kids that are coming out of school. They're high paying as I said, and they are needed. Community colleges have been doing that for a long time. I mean, it seems like everybody else is starting to catch up and realize that we have a demand for high-skilled workforce. Those kind of programs are going to be critical, right? I mean, talk about some of the the programs that you all have provided for many years that are focused on workforce development and those highly skilled jobs, the training for those jobs to get kids ready for the workforce.
2: There are so many, and they're really tied, Kevin and Drew, to their local economic needs. So they may be very, very different when you go to the Eastern Shore versus what is needed in, say, a Montgomery County or or a Baltimore County to take a six month course or a year course or program come out with a certificate or a licensure and jump right into the workforce and they're going to be different because maryland is not one homogeneous economy there's so many different needs across the state so i would encourage anybody listening to look at their local community college and see what they're offering so it's hard for me to pick out just a few
1: so on the note of looking into your local community college I have to ask, so a huge merit of community college is being close to home. And with the pandemic forcing so much of learning online, it seemingly kind of makes everything seem close to home. So Brad, can you tell us why should, why are community colleges still a great option for your local community college when students suddenly have the remote learning option from University of Maryland or Arizona State or just about any place? Why should they still stay local?
2: I want to be fair and play nice with my four-year counterparts in the independent (laughs) and public four-year sector, but really, honestly, uh, if you talk to anybody that's been going to those sort of four-year institutions to be locked down in their dormitory and paying a substantial sum of money, um, we can offer the same instruction at our community colleges via virtually, where you won't have to pay as much uh, tuition or or other expenses to to take. It is the solid option for people who are actually trying to figure out what to do next. But whatever you do, it's imperative that you continue your education now more than ever. It just gets harder and harder for students if they wait or defer their educational goals. Um, And we really think that if you're on the fence, Give the community colleges a try. You can take it at home, it's local, the tuition is much more affordable, and we think it's a win. And we're really working with our four-year counterparts on transfer. The pandemic has upended our enrollment patterns. There will be no more uh, majority of students that start at one institution and graduate from that institution. The majority of students will now be attending more, one or more institutions. So we think it's a win-win all the way
0: around. So Brad, you mentioned earlier that, you know, local community colleges are really tailored to their communities and and some take a regional approach and the community college system was built just that way, right? To allow certain campuses to host specialty programs that don't make sense in a lot of other places, just not enough interest, not enough students. Are we seeing those programs start to blossom during an environment with a lot of remote learning? Students from all across the state enrolling at, let's say, Cecil Community College or wherever, because they have the lead program in something, and it just got easier to access. Are we seeing those programs start to blossom?
2: We we will find out eventually, Kevin, as the enrollment numbers come in. It's still sort of the first draft, but those statewide shortage programs are valuable to the state, and the community colleges as a sector work well with each other to allow students in one, say, service area to access a program in another service area at that in-state cost with the state keeping a catalog of what those opportunities are. And I would imagine of those programs will gain more and more uh, traction as we go forward. Those statewide programs can be expensive and it's really nice to be able to collaborate with all of the colleges in offering those.
1: We know that many community college students, they ultimately transfer, as you said earlier, to the four-year institutions. I think it's something like 15,000 students a year attend the campus-based college transfer events during both spring and fall semesters.
0: Yes, and and Brad, those, I believe those events are critical for students to discover and explore opportunities for next steps in higher education. They're essentially just keys to the transfer students' decision-making process. I I don't know, amid the pandemic, it seems like a lot of those are going to be cut off. They're not going to have the the ability to go and attend these fairs and learn more about how they can continue their education. Brad, how are community colleges responding to that? What, what are you doing to make sure that those opportunities still exist and that students have all the information they need should they want to go ahead and maybe transfer to a four-year school?
2: No, this is, this is a great question because this is the first year that we've actually t- launched a statewide virtual transfer fair and if you go to our website, you can see on we had three different dates, over 100 institutions um, for each community college to set up. And I want to emphasize that the colleges did a lot of the work and the universities did most of the work. We provided them a one-stop website portal where they could go and just see what options are available to do these virtual statewide transfer events. And each of the community college partnered with all of the four-year institutions in Maryland and the private institutions, you can go. we had Georgetown on there. We had a number of out-of-state um, institutions as well. And we think it's been a remarkable success. Um, we're still waiting to get the numbers of how many students were able to participate in each of the college's events, but we're very excited to be able to do this to help students. We know it's a difficult world to navigate and transfer is even all the harder considering the pandemic.
1: It sounds like you guys have done some really creative thinking with how to get students involved and really promote necessity of community colleges.
2: Absolutely Drew and like I said at the beginning of this as we begin to grow into our full potential and the economic world in which we live requires students to have some type of post secondary education. We really really do want to make sure that we have all of our loose ends tied up. Students can transfer We want to make certain that the state understands their funding commitment and achieve that funding parity goal without hurting their black or brown or low-income students in the state. Um, We have a lot of of things to continue to work on, goals. These are long-term systemic issues that we've been wrestling with for years, um, but we do think we can fix these problems.
0: And Brad, looking ahead, I mean, we sit here in October. Session is around the corner. We don't exactly know What session is going to look like? We don't know what the state's budget picture is going to look like. A lot of that hinges on what Congress is able to do or not do. A lot of that hinges on whether or not we have another round of COVID 19 infections. We know that the funding formula needs to be addressed. We know that we need to get the state to kick in their fair share when it comes to funding our community colleges, which, again, are really the backbone of our local communities what else are you looking forward to in the 2021 session? Is there anything else that community colleges will be focused on in 2021 besides, again, trying to get that funding level to where it needs to be?
2: Obviously, the bread and butter issues of our operating budget and our capital budget request, as well as a facilities renewal grant. We haven't really talked much about that, but we recently started a, a grant program to receive um, funding for our facilities renewal projects. Well, that money was taken back by the Board of Public Works in 2020 and 2021 and we're hoping to get it in 2022 but we're still missing 250000 from the first year for some of our schools that had started projects and have to pay to finish them out of pocket. We hope to be able to reinstate the funding for the Facilities Renewal Grant for 2020 and 2021 and 2022. Uh, we also are looking at perhaps some transfer possibilities, And we really want to start looking at ways to improve the financial aid awarding process by making it universal that students have to file their FAFSA form. The FAFSA form is sort of an administrative document, but it really determines what students pay, not the sticker price, but what they actually pay when they go to college. And I think if more students were to file their FAFSA, they would be eligible for Pell or Promise or other state need-based financial aid. And, of course, we're going to be working to continue to get the Promise funding of $15 million. So it's ambitious goals, uh, considering what we don't know what we're walking into, but we think they will all help Maryland uh, move forward with creating the workforce that they need for the 21st century.
0: And, Brad, you mentioned the Promise program. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what that means and why it's so important for students in Maryland? The
2: Promise Program was passed. We were able to get $15 million. Unfortunately, that got reduced, again, by the Board of Public Works and a little bit through the Burfa last year, and uh, we're around $8 million. Currently, we have about a 3,000-student wait list because of the reductions that would have been eligible to receive the funding. And we do think it's a game-changer. It's a way to promise students who are on the fence or can't afford to go that Maryland is there to commit to them, that if they get a degree, they can get a financial aid to finish. And we think it is such a fundamental program for equity. We hope to continue to grow it. I think there will be a tremendous need going forward considering the the economy. And we really do hope to get full funding um, next year and potentially more in the future.
0: Definitely anything that we can do to get more kids excited about furthering their education is so important. And, and the PROMISE program is really targeted at middle-income families, right? So again, to make sure that the funding is available for these students who want to continue their education. Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. Anything else that we didn't talk about here today, Brad, that you think is, is critical at this moment for community colleges and, and what you want our listeners to know?
2: I think I could continue talking for another hour, um, Kevin, but I think we've covered the nuts and bolts of the issues that we have going forward. I just would like to know, let us know if there's ways that we can help you. I know you have initiatives um, going forward that I think we can work with you as well. Um, I know broadband is a big issue and we really do need that in every county in Maryland to help our students access the online instruction. And we, we would love to be able to participate in helping getting that legislation
0: passed as well. Broadband certainly going to be a big issue moving forward. Drew, you've been working on the broadband issue and it sounds like you have another coalition member to help move the ball forward when it comes to getting Maryland connected.
1: Yeah, always happy to have another strategic partner in the whole issue of broadband and every other thing. Uh, Brad has always been wonderful to work with, and I'm, I'm super excited to continue our relationship going forward and getting things done.
0: We have a great partnership when it comes to the counties and the community colleges. We know community colleges play such an important role in our communities in so many different ways. So we really appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing you or not maybe virtually uh, during the next session.
2: Same. Thank you both so much, Kevin and Drew. You've been wonderful to work with as well.
0: All right. That'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way all of these episodes will be sent to the device of your choice You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for now, for Brad Phillips and Drew Jabin, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.